You're listening to Campus Review Radio. Hi, it's Lauren, Education Editor at Campus Review. Today I spoke with Brian Martin, a former Professor of Social Sciences at the University of Wollongong. Now that he's retired, he feels free to speak up on many university issues. One that's caught his interest is that of learning, specifically how universities aren't encouraging this. We spoke about an article he wrote on this subject, published in the Australian Universities Review. I guess the first question I wanted to ask is a little bit of a seemingly strange one, but you've written about how learning can be incorporated more into what universities offer. So my question is, why is learning so important? Okay, well, we need to step back and say, what are universities for? And one of the primary justifications is that it helps students to learn about the world. They learn about their discipline. They learn about how to develop study habits so that they can learn further in the rest of their life. And so learning is important because it's one of the key goals of education. You make several points about how learning is sort of detracted from in a university setting. And your first point is about assessment. And you write, quote, the symbols of learning can displace learning itself. Can you explain what you meant by this? Well, the symbol of learning is getting a, a mark on an essay you know, passing an exam or getting a degree. And in many cases, students are more fixated on what they get as a result of, you know, submitting an essay or doing the exam, more interested in that than they are in actually learning the stuff that's being assessed. And they're often more interested in getting the degree than they are in all the things they learn along the way. So I've heard lots of students, they talk about, oh, why do I have to take this class? Well, they have to take it because it's part of the degree. So they're not really interested in learning the stuff. They're interested in the outcomes that they get. And that's the symbols of learning. I think you mentioned this in the article that most of what you do in a job post-university is different to what you've learnt at university. So given that, what's the importance of learning the content that you do at university? Well, you have to say, what's, what's the purpose from the point of view of the teachers or the, the learners or the whole system? And this, this is the curious thing. Uh, you know, universities' teaching is done by academics and yeah, postgraduates who do casual tutoring, that sort of thing. And so they are naturally going to be putting in the, into the syllabus the things that interest them, and they're going to be looking for the sort of things that uh, basically follow the same direction that they, take, they took. And so a lot of university material is oriented to the interests of, of the teacher rather than the students. And the students determine the curriculum. You might have a, a very different sort of uh, different sort of enterprise, but that's really off the agenda. Moving on to the ways in which we learn, and the way in which unis do or don't apply this. You mentioned a book called How We Learn. First, can you go through the key takeaways from that book? Well, it's 
it's interestingly, it's written by a journalist. This is an accessible treatment of the latest research on, on learning. And for example, you know, one of the findings which has been reproduced over and over and widely known is that it's better to space out the learning, namely to if you're going to learn something in 10 days, it's better to study a bit on each one of the 10 days rather than saving it all up till the night before. That's obvious enough, but what's interesting is that that insight and all the details of how that insight actually applies all sorts of specifications as to how much to study to maximize learning within a given amount of time, that's not really taken on board by teachers who simply present their material and leave it to the students to work out the best way to learn. So the students don't really, they don't study this sort of research either. And so they just use their intuitive ways of learning, which is they've learned through their primary and high school study, which is procrastination and binging, namely you wait till the night before the exam to study. Not true of all students, but it's very common. And you mention in the piece that universities don't seem to adhere to the precepts of the ways in which we learn. Is there a particular reason why they don't do that? The best reason I could come up with is the fact that it's a a focus on assessment and credentials and academics focusing on content. And so by focusing on the content, that's what academics have the monopoly over, essentially. So the specialists in any given research area, by teaching that material, they are the authorities on that. Whereas if the main approach in universities were shifted more towards here's how we're going to help people become really good learners and they can go out and do apply that those skills in all sorts of ways, well then academic specialists, whether in philosophy or physics, wouldn't have such a you know, claim to expertise. Another element of learning is something called a fixed or a growth mindset, I guess the latter being the one that helps you learn, and that's something established by Carol Dweck. Can you just start by describing a fixed and a growth mindset? Okay, well, it's basically set on beliefs about whether people are naturally intelligent or whether performance depends upon how much effort you put into learning something. And so people who believe that someone is bright because they're you're born that way, then they've got a different attitude to studying than someone who believes that if you do well, it means you worked really hard and you keep working. And unfortunately, in Australia, lots of people believe in the natural intelligence sort of thing. So, and it's very common amongst academics, amongst scientists, amongst various others. That person is, you know, really smart. The assumption then is, well, you don't need to study. That person's just smart. And so that sort of approach is not very good for getting people to actually put the effort in to become better. Research I've seen is having high IQ might be good learning things in the short term, but in terms of developing great expertise, you have to put massive amounts of work in no matter how you're born. And so what's interesting is that in cultures which don't have this idea of the innate genius of some people, and for example in China, then they're more likely to, to work hard. 
and therefore they're going to do better. But the expert reformers' research is in some ways the most impressive, and it also counters the idea that there's innate intelligence. Erickson's argument would be there's no good evidence that anyone who becomes really, really good at something has started off with a brain that's systematically different from anyone else, setting aside influences on the brain before birth. We all start out with the same sort of capacity to become either a Mozart or you know, a drug addict or both. I'm sitting there with students in my class, and I know that you know, brain plasticity means that if they spent an hour or two every day on something they really thought was important, then within a matter of few years, they'd be really, really good at it. And of course, after a couple of decades, they'd be the world class. You know, it's just not on the agenda. It's really sad, except for sports and performing arts. They've got to do it, otherwise they can't possibly compete. So can you explain how university structures in Australia are kind of set up to have that false assumption about how intelligence works or how good grades can be achieved? When the teachers just sit back and they get the assignments for the various students and they see some people are doing really well and they assume, oh, they're doing well because they're smart. And that those sort of students are then groomed to do further study, to do honors or PhD, whatever. And so there's no exploration into, well, let's see, maybe they're working hard, more efficiently. They've got better study skills, as well as maybe better background. And so other students, if they were taught the same sort of skills in terms of how to do better, to have a growth mindset rather than giving up because they think they're not smart, then they might actually do a lot better than they do otherwise. But that sort of exploration into the attitudes that people have towards their own capacities, that isn't what's explored in in most classes. Your final point about learning is on the healthy body, healthy mind connection, which I think most people know about. But you make an interesting point about the ways in which universities can promote this. So can you explain that point? Okay, well, there's lots of research showing that if you exercise, it's good for your mind, good for your brain. There's all sorts of things that improves emotional stability and it may also improve you know, capacity to learn. So all of that's known, but it's never applied in any systematic way in classes. So it, you know, students are left to their own devices to decide how they're going to spend their time. And so if they're in the sort of traditional procrastination and binging approach to studying, so they wait till the last moment to try and study, they're also not taking care of their body and their mind. There's no real systematic encouragement to say, hmm, you should be training in all sorts of ways to be a better thinker. And training means changing the body as well. And of course, it's not just the universities. The way the whole society is set up is to make it easier for people to not use their muscles, to not get exercise. That's why everyone has cars and, you know, you've got all sorts of labor-saving devices. Given the importance of health in all sorts of ways to the learning, you might think a bit more attention to this would be worthwhile. You touch on the work of Ivan Illich 
he wrote a book called De-Schooling Society in 1971. So can you explain his idea, which was, and you note, still is considered radical? Yes, well, Illich more generally was writing about what he called disabling professions. So he's looking at law, at, at medicine. He wrote a book called Medical Nemesis. Look at the transport system and look at all of these and he's saying professionals, while they may be skilled in their own way, are disabling other people by essentially forcing them into certain ways of operating so that ordinary people lose their own capacities. And so in terms of schooling, Illich says, you know, the whole education system, and he wasn't just looking at universities, the whole education system is actually inhibiting people's learning and it would be better to let them learn in the community. And so this, of course, it goes against a lot of of sort of laws we have now. We've got laws against child labor and, and the like. But if we know that people learn the most on the job, then why not have children learning things on the job? Well, things are just not set up that way at the moment. Nonetheless, I don't think we expect universities to lead the way in this change because that would undermine their rationale many ways. I'm just really putting it out there as an idea that's worth revisiting ideas of Illich and various others around that period who were questioning the way the whole education system is set up. As you know, there's a lot of questions at the moment about the ways in which universities function, how they've become increasingly commercial. So do you think there's a chance they will pivot towards more of a learning focus, perhaps even if it's for a commercial purpose? I'm not particularly good at predicting the future (laughs) on this. And and the past past, uh, scenario thinks we're probably on the same trajectory. We're going going to continue along the commercialization path. And and there's a whole bunch of different factors. Now, universities, yes, they're becoming more commercial, but they've always been influenced by a whole range of factors. So you've got the actual students who want to get degrees and get better jobs. And meanwhile, you've got various groups in the community all saying to say, we have your results, you know, have these students doing certain sorts of things. And even got the government liking to have universities to reduce the pool of unemployed. So there's a whole bunch of conflicting influences on higher education and if you look at the history of higher education it's not going to move quickly in any particular direction and I think the main influence that's happening now is people find it so much more easy to learn things on their own because of what's online and also because of the media that allow people to connect to each other and learn from each other so that we're seeing that that's always been true but it's facilitated more by the internet and social media and that's a big competitor and of course, you got people saying, oh, don't trust anything you read on the web and not so forth. But nonetheless, people do. I don't know how it's going to influence higher education, but it's certainly going to have an influence. I guess the point I was getting at was the fact that the credential benefit of universities has been watered down by the fact that there are more and more graduates. So I was wondering if that could be a catalyst for universities to change their business model in a way, but I guess, as you said, it's very hard to predict the future. I'd, I'd say credentialism may still have a, a ways to go, because if you look back you know, 50 or 100 years, then you'd say having an undergraduate degree then was probably as rare as it is to have a PhD today. and 
So we get more and more people going higher up in the system because it used to be in the old days, finishing high school is enough to get you a job and then that's become, whoops, now you need a university degree. <laughs> it's going to become that and you need a master's degree and so on. And we got the same credentialism happening around the world. It's not just an Australian phenomenon and it has peculiar effects. As we know, there's lots of PhDs driving taxis. So you've got an inflation of credentials and universities, how can they get off that sort of escalator? It's pretty hard. Thank you so much for speaking with me. It's a pleasure.